Father, thank you for your amazing grace. And it is a sweet, sweet sound to our ears, Lord, that you've chosen to work with the likes of us, Lord, that you've lavished upon us your love and your grace. And despite our mistakes, despite the ways we've failed you, despite, Lord, our shortcomings and our inadequacies, Lord, you still love us. That is amazing grace. That you're willing to wash away all our sin. That you're willing to treat us, Lord, as if we'd never sinned at all. You're willing to call us your kids. Father, we're grateful that we can call you Father. And we thank you, Lord, for this relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in that relationship. Strengthen our faith. Help us, Lord, to study your word this morning. Lead us and guide us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dismiss our kids to Sunday school. And let me remind everyone that the brook is open this morning. As a matter of fact, I think we've got uh, Mary Lou's meatloaf today. And I know there's some uh, vanilla ice cream with some of that Nestle's chocolate squirted on top of it because I saw some kids walking around with that earlier. So I know there's meatloaf and ice cream, at least. And there's probably some other fixings to go along with that. So uh, the brook is uh, back in the back corner over here if you'd like to eat lunch with us after the service today. This morning, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We are looking at the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, this morning, we are going to study the Tenth Commandment in God's top ten list. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read one verse this morning, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. Remember, Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. God has come upon the mountain. There's lightning flashes. There's great thunder. The mountain's quaking and rumbling with the presence of God. And from the top of the mountain... God thunders down these words to Moses and to his people Israel and even to us today. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, even if it's in a new subdivision with swim and tennis and with that full basement that you've always wanted in that three-car garage and those stainless steel appliances and the wood floors and the kitchen with those countertops that you've dreamed of. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, even when she goes out to get the mail out of the mailbox wearing her negligee. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's male servant. You know the guy from the landscape service that sprays his weeds and mows his grass? Don't covet that male servant. You shall not covet your neighbor's female servant. Or the girl from Maid Brigade 
who comes in every other week to clean her house, and she doesn't even work, and she still gets maid brigade to come and clean her house. Don't covet your neighbor's female servant. You shall not covet your neighbor's ox or that new John Deere riding lawnmower. <laughs> Boy, it, it, it even has that cup holder right next to that padded cushy seat. Don't covet that thing. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey, even if it's a new sport utility donkey and was named the 2005 Donkey of the Year by Motor Trend Magazine. Don't covet your neighbor's donkey. Guys, as you look out the window at that swimming pool in your neighbor's backyard, or that new Harley in the garage, or the furniture that's being unloaded from the rooms-to-go truck, or the bass boat parked in the driveway, or the big screen plasma TV box sitting out next to his trash can that just arrived in time for the Super Bowl, no less. When you see all this, remember what God thunders from Mount Sinai. Let it ring in your ears. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. The Tenth Commandment mentions specifically your neighbor's house and wife, and servants, and ox, and donkey. But this list is not intended to be comprehensive. The items in verse 17 are suggestive, not exhaustive. God makes the prohibition all-inclusive when He lists the last line, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And that doesn't just include material things. Neither should you covet someone else's good looks or their athletic skill, or their sense of humor, or their way with words, or their station in life, or the friendships they've made, or their talents, or their golf game, or their intellect, or their pleasant personality, or their opportunities, or even their ministry, or their spiritual maturity. Some of you have coveted your pastor's ability to tell a good joke. Shame on you for that. Remember the scope of the last line, nor anything that is your neighbor. Speaking of a good joke, did you hear about the snooty rich guy? He ordered a brand new Rolls Royce. And after a long time, his dream car finally arrived. In fact, he was driving through town, showing off his new wheels when he pulled up next to a Volkswagen Beetle. Now, the Beetle had tinted windows, so you really couldn't see inside. But the driver of the Beetle was obviously anxious to communicate with the owner of the Rolls Royce. And so he rolled down his window, and the guy in the Beetle, he sort of scoffed at him, and he said, You think you're better than everybody else driving around in that fancy car, huh? Well, my Beetle has a color television. I bet your uppity car doesn't have a color television. And that's when the owner of the Rolls-Royce, he answered. He said, well, I beg your pardon. He said, my car does have a color television. Well, it doesn't have a fax machine. Reaches in the back, pulls out a fax, starts waving it at him. I beg your pardon. My Rolls-Royce does have a fax machine. Well, what about a refrigerator? Reaches in, pulls out a cold Coca-Cola. Well, yes, a Rolls-Royce does come standard with a refrigerator. Well, my beetle has a bed in the back. I'll bet your snooty car doesn't have a bed in the back. And, and that's when the driver of the Rolls Royce sort of shrugged his shoulders and he just drove off. But the next day, this rich guy 
was back at the Rolls dealership having them install a brand new one of those roll-out beds in the back seat of the, of the vehicle. He wasn't going to be outdone by a VW Beetle. Well, when the work had been finished, he went and he found the guy in the Beetle. Pulled right up next to the car. Wanted to talk to him. Wanted to prove to him that he now had a bed in the back. But there was no movement inside. And so he got out and he sort of knocked. Still no answer. Finally, the, the guy in the Beetle opens the door and he says, Ah, oh, you're the rich guy with a fancy car. What do you want now? And the rich man said, Well, I just want you to know that I now have a rollout bed in the back of my Rolls Royce. And that's when the guy in the Beetle sort of fired back. He said, You cut me out of the shower to tell me that? Don't be like the owner of that Volkswagen Beetle, you know, who was proud of his possessions. And don't be like the Rolls-Royce owner who coveted his neighbor's, you know, amenities. The Bible tells us, do not covet. Now, don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with us wanting nice things, with working hard in saving our money, and purchasing amenities that will better our lives. The Bible knows nothing of asceticism, of sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. Austere living isn't necessarily a means to godliness. Poverty doesn't equal piety. Rather, the Bible teaches us that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with wanting a house, just as long as it's not your neighbor's house. Or his lake house. If you're single, there's nothing wrong with you desiring a wife. Proverbs 18 tells us, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Just make sure that the wife that you find is not somebody else's wife. There's nothing wrong with you desiring a new car. Or that dream vacation. Or a promotion and a raise. Or a new laptop. Or new golf clubs. Or a new fancy cell phone. But here's what happens. We're not even thinking about a new cell phone. You know, we're more than happy with the one that we've got. Until we see someone else's new cell phone. It's got a color screen. And it makes cool ringing noises. And it takes photos. And it's razor thin. And rather than be happy that our friend has this new cell phone, that she was able to buy this cell phone, we get angry because his cell phone is better than our cell phone. It's not fair. And this is called covetousness. It's desire born out of selfishness and pride. And God forbids it. James chapter 1 verse 14 sort of gives us the anatomy of of covetousness, of how covetousness works. James writes, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Rather than walk in the will of God, rather than trust God for our blessings, we're drawn away by a desire, and we're enticed. We want it now, when God says wait. 
We say yes when God says no. We say mine when God says his. A desire that may not be sinful in and of itself ends up sinful when it forces me outside of God's will and when it causes me to ignore the welfare of others. You see, the Tenth Commandment forbids inordinate, inappropriate desire. It prohibits unbridled lust for possessions that don't belong to us. Covetousness is, in a sense, desire out of control. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Tenth Commandment. He renders verse 17, No lusting after your neighbor's house, or wife, or servant, or maid, or ox, or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. Don't set your heart on what belongs to your neighbor. Here are a few definitions for the word covet. It's to crave to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. Here's another definition. It's a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something that belongs to another. Another author provides this definition. Coveting is what causes a little twinge of disappointment whenever someone else gets what we want. And I like the definition given by Haddon Robertson. To me, it's so challenging. It's craving more of what you have enough of already. It's the desire to hoard. Covetousness, you see, is an obsession with possession. It's the belief, either stated or unstated, that more of anything on this earth will bring me fulfillment and real peace. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You see, covetousness is born out of a false assumption. It's the heretical belief that more of a commodity, that more wealth, that more beauty, that more of an activity, that more attention from people will bring me happiness. And when it doesn't, that false belief drives me to get even more, even if that more becomes my neighbor's more. In a sense, covetousness is expecting too much out of this life. It's asking material things and temporal experiences in human relationships to produce what only God can produce, spiritual satisfaction. Possess nice things, that's okay. Enjoy your own wife's company. Hire a servant to make your life easier. Just don't expect it to fill up your emptiness. It can't. As I've said many times before, physical stuff will never satisfy a spiritual need. Here's a thought that you should chew on for a while. If I get what I'm longing for and I'm still longing, then what I was longing for was really not what I was longing for. Actor Brad Pitt was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine when he made this comment. He says, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, the version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. we got to find something else. We are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And I don't want that. 
The problem with covetousness is it settles for less, not more. It takes from others what will never satisfy rather than turning to God for what will satisfy us forever. When Jesus offered the Samaritan woman a drink of well water, he told her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. And those words apply to everything that this world offers. You will thirst again. Only Jesus can satisfy us forever. In Luke chapter 12, after Jesus had warned them to beware of covetousness, he told them a story. Verse 15, he spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do? since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. Now, it's not as if this guy didn't already have plenty. I mean, he was a rich man, a noble man, you might say, and he had barns already full of crops. I guess we could call him Barnes and Noble. He had barns. He was noble. But he wanted to demolish all of his barns so he could build bigger barns. A regular store wasn't enough for him. He wanted a superstore. Notice this rich man never gives God credit, never says thanks to God for his abundance. Jesus said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. But who do you think sets in motion the cycle of life? Who produces the produce from the ground? Who's ultimately responsible for the growth of the crops? Apparently, this man wanted to keep God out of the equation. God might have given him an increase so that he could bless others rather than just fill barns. God might want him to feed people rather than fill barns. But the sin of covetousness, you see, ignores two things. God's will in people's welfare. An obsession with possession runs roughshod over what God wants and others need. Well, verse 19 reveals to us what Barnes & Noble was thinking. It says, and I will say to my soul. Notice he's talking to himself there. That's not a good sign. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, I'm going to trust in my goods rather than my God. He thinks stuff will satisfy his soul. And so his plan is to just sort of kick back and relax. But God interrupts this conversation that he's having with himself. God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Guys, death always pulls the plug on covetousness. Here's the height of foolishness. We all know that we have a date with death. Our time on earth is nothing but our preparation for eternity. So why spend your whole life hoarding and storing up what you can't take with you? Jesus draws from this story a lesson. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The sin of covetousness is short-sighted thinking. It's wanting to have it all now with no regard to what really counts, the will of God and the welfare of other people. 
It's the belief that if I can just get the next thing, I'll be satisfied. Years ago, there was an episode on television that depicted a family that was sitting around the table together eating dinner. And the husband was excited. He had dreamed up a can't-miss idea that would be sure to make his family rich. He was going to start a new business. He promised his wife, he said, Honey, one day we'll be eating off golden plates. But that's when she asked him, But darling, will the food taste any better? We think the next thing is our ticket to happiness. We scrape and we save and we run up the credit cards to achieve our goal. And when we get what we want, we wonder what difference did it make at all. We need to remember Proverbs 27 verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Of course, not all desire is evil. There is such a thing as good coveting. Often we say to each other, I covet your prayers. We do want our friends to be praying for us. Sometimes we say, oh, I covet your friendship. Or I covet God's blessings on my life. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, Paul is speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit when he tells the believers in the church at Corinth to covet earnestly the best gifts. In his book on the Ten Commandments, Pat Robertson makes an interesting observation about good coveting. He says this, Christians are to covet the attributes of God. The reason it is appropriate to covet after God in His righteousness is simple. God is infinite. Therefore, there is enough of God for everyone. God is never diminished. So your receipt of God's blessings in no way takes from me. Nor does, nor does my receipt of God's nature take from you. There is nothing wrong with coveting what is, unlimit, is in unlimited supply any more than it is sinful to earnestly desire to breathe fresh air or bask in the rays of the sun. The Tenth Commandment does not forbid all coveting, only coveting what is in short supply and belongs to someone else. Evil coveting is selfish desire that cares nothing about what God wants or what others need. It's all about me. And that's what God forbids. It reminds me of the woman and her son who were walking through the forest one day when they were caught in the path of a swirling tornado. The woman clung to a tree with one hand. She clung to her son with the other hand, but to no avail. The strong wind swept the boy away. And after the storm had subsided, the woman began to weep, and she cried out to God. She said, Father in heaven, please give me back my son, and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And suddenly, the boy fell out of the sky, plopped right down at her feet. The woman picked up her son, sort of looked him over from head to toe, and then with an agitated expression on her face, she looked up and she shouted to God, He had a hat, Lord. You know, some folks are so discontent that they miss the works that God has done and the blessings that He's given because of a few details we think God shorted us. It's been said the person with a covetous heart believes everything he does for God is too much and everything God does for him is too little. I believe the number one problem in America today is covetousness. It's never having enough. This is why we're greedy and we're pushy and we're unhappy and we're never grateful. It's covetousness. 
Hey, if you're an American living in our country today, you are among the top 99.4% of the richest people who have ever lived on this planet. You're in the upper 1% of 80 billion people. And yet our prosperity is not enough for us. In fact, our whole economy is built on covetousness. We have an entire industry called advertising that does nothing but stir up discontent in people's hearts. It's become a science. We've become experts at stimulating the desire to get more and to have more and to be more. Even the toothpaste we sell promises to make your life complete and produce a lifetime of happiness. Covetousness is what fuels our economy. It's been said Americans buy what they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. <laughs> Author Mark Buchanan, he writes an article that was published in Christianity Today magazine. I really like this. Think, think with me. I'll read it to you. It says, I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default. Not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More. You deserve it. New. Faster. Cleaner. Brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit, no down payment, deferred payment, no interest for three months. It has its own preachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles, admin, pitch men, and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, malls, superstores, club warehouses. It has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing, central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. Former basketball star Scottie Pippen, he, he made a comment during his playing days with the Portland Trailblazers Blazers that to me epitomizes what's going on in America today. At the time... Pippen was making $14.7 million a year. That's not including his endorsements. He owned a 74-foot yacht, and he drove a $100,000 Mercedes-Benz. But at the games, he would eye the owner of the Trailblazers, Paul Allen, a billionaire from Microsoft. And once Pippen told Sports Illustrated, what does he have, $40 billion? How can I make just one billion? I just want one of them. What can I do? For Scottie Pippen, 14 million is not enough. It takes a billion to satisfy him. Recently, I read a survey that asked, how much money does it take to make a person rich? The respondents to this survey all had an annual household income of around $50,000. 2% of the people surveyed said it would take $100,000 to make them rich. 4% said $250,000. 7% said half a million dollars. 
30% said it would take a million dollars to make them rich. 28% said it would take $3 million to make them rich. And another 28% said it would take $5 million to make them rich. That means that 56% of the people said it would take $3 million or more to make them rich. Apparently, we're no longer impressed with just $1 million. Now it takes millions, plural. <coughs> Here's the problem for all of us. It takes so much more to satisfy us today than it did yesterday. You know, 10 or 20 years ago, if you made what you're making today, you'd be the happiest person on the earth. Now, I realize that inflation has taken its toll. And, and the bigger problem, you know, you know, prices have gone up. I understand that. But I think the bigger problem, other than inflated prices, is our inflated desires. I think that's the biggest problem. You know, a typical grocery store in 1976 stocked 9,000 items. Did you know today an American grocery store stocks 30,000 different items? You see, our wants have increased. That's the problem. There's a Greek philosopher, Epictetus, who in 100 A.D. made a statement that I think applies as well today as then. He said, contentment comes not from great wealth, as from few wants. Here is the problem with more stuff. It only stuffs. It stuffs us for a while, so we don't have to think about what really matters in life, so that we don't have to answer that deep down cry of our hearts. But until we find what we're truly longing for, we'll keep longing for something else. Our covetousness won't make us any happier. Here's the truth that protects us from covetousness. There is nothing wrong with us possessing things as long as those things don't possess us. You keep the 10th commandment by not allowing your possessions to become obsessions. In a recent article by Patricia Dalton, a psychologist from Nashville, she writes, those of us who lived through the 60s seem to have forgotten the warning that everything you buy owns you. To pay for all their junk, people now work so hard, they're ruining their marriages, their families, and their health. You see, the more stuff you have, the more it costs you to insure it and protect it and keep it looking nice and replace it when it's broken. It's a vicious cycle. Benjamin Franklin once said, He who multiplies riches multiplies cares. You see, we think money is going to satisfy our appetites. It only enlarges them. A Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, he once said, As a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat, so a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. Coveting that next thing, living for money, strips us of what makes life really important. We have to give up too much. When a reporter asked Rockefeller how much money was enough, he answered, one more dollar. Guys, make money your master, and he'll be a cruel master. You know, money will either be a tool or a tyrant. Money will either be a servant or a master, Live for money and you'll never satisfy your boss. 
As Paul said to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. It produces nothing but strife and frustration and despair. James chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that the clamor and the friction and the fighting in this world is all in the ultimate sense caused by covetousness. He says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. If we just coveted God's blessing, if we just took our needs to Him, He would see to it that we had everything that we needed. God gives us money for two reasons, to enjoy and to employ. He wants us to better our lives. That's okay. He wants us too, though, to better the lives of others. We need to use money, not be used by money. At Mount Sinai, God thundered down a warning, a negative Shall not, you shall not covet. But with all ten shall nots, there also comes a positive. For the opposite of covetousness is contentment. And this should be the goal for every Christian. This should be the tenth non-negotiable for our lives. We need to decide in advance that we're going to be contented people, not covetous people. That we're going to seek the peace of God, not a piece of the pie. That we're going to trust God for what we need and for what our family needs. Matthew 6 verse 33 should be every believer's motto. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. I hope you realize that your net worth has nothing to do with your self-worth. Paul gives to Timothy his definition of success. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Success in God's eyes is being so in love with Jesus that He alone is all you need. Real wealth is a devotion to Jesus coupled with a deep down satisfaction that only He can bring. I love Hebrews 13 verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, with Jesus, there's no downside. He satisfies me spiritually and he knows exactly what I need physically. His blessings free me. They don't trap me. Once there was a poor stone cutter who lived in a bamboo hut on the edge of the jungle. One day he heard noises out in the street. A king was coming down the path. He, he was standing there. In all of his splendor, he had an entourage around him. He was dressed in silk. Armies and soldiers were at his command. And he saw that king, and and the stonecutter asked God if he could become a king. God granted his request. But as a king, he had problems. The sun beat down upon the crops of his kingdom. And the heat created parched fields and created a famine. And there was really nothing that the king could do about it. The son was more powerful than the king. And so one day he cried out to God and he asked God if he would transform him from a king into the son. And again, God granted his request. As the son, he enjoyed immense power. The day and the night obeyed him until one day a tiny little cloud blocked his light and shielded his rays from reaching the earth. And the king who had become a son now wanted to be a cloud. And God obliged. And as a cloud, he gained great strength. 
and he poured down rain over all the earth. He finally felt truly powerful. He filled up lakes and streams and rivers and oceans. He affected everything but the rocks. These massive rocks remained unmoved, unchanged by his influence. And so he asked to be a stone. And again, God worked a miracle and transformed him into a stone. That's when one day he was approached by a man with a hammer and a chisel in his hand. And this man began to chip away at him. And immediately he realized that this man was more powerful than him. And so once again he turned to God and he prayed, Please, let me be a stone cutter. And so God granted his request. And today that stone cutter lives in a bamboo hut on the edge of the jungle. And he makes his living with a hammer and a chisel. And that stone cutter is the happiest person you've ever met. Guys, God loves you. And he has a plan for your life. And perhaps the key to real satisfaction is not coveting what you don't have, but realizing what you do have. That where you're at and what you have and who you're with, it's God's blessing on your life. I read of a thief named Danny Simpson who robbed a bank in Ottawa, Canada. He used a 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic pistol in the robbery. Danny made off with $6,000 cash. He was caught shortly thereafter, and he spent the next six years in jail. And unbeknownst to Danny, the pistol that he used in the heist was actually an antique gun that had been made by the Ross Rifle Company in 1918. And while he was in prison, the police auctioned it off for $100,000. That pistol was worth 16 times what Danny got from the robbery. If only Danny Simpson had realized he already had in his hand what he needed. I'm praying that that realization will reach you. Paul said to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Let's make contentment a non-negotiable in our lives. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells us that we have to learn to be content. He says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Apparently, contentment is a learned trait. We cultivate it over time. We have to teach our minds and discipline our thoughts to resist the cult of the next thing. To reject the belief that satisfaction can be found in stuff here and now. Paul goes on to say, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul learned contentment because he based his joy not on his lot in life, but on the Lord of life. He looked to and leaned on Jesus, and he expected very little from this world, good or bad. This is the key to contentment. Bring your thirst to Jesus. Live life today in light of eternity. 
Yes, enjoy the good things that God gives you, but seek His will. Make that your priority. Make the welfare of others your goal. Let me close by stating what now should be obvious. The Tenth Commandment is a little bit different from the nine that precede it. It's the first commandment that deals exclusively with attitude. Have you noticed this? At least on the surface, the others all deal with action. But this Tenth Commandment deals specifically with attitude. Certainly all of the commandments have a spiritual application. Jesus taught this principle in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember there he said, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. He spoke of the man who gets angry with his brother without a cause. He's in danger of the same penalty as murder. You see, behind each of these first nine commandments, there is a spiritual application. But the tenth commandment, it just cuts straight to the heart. It looks beyond the actions to the attitude. It exposes man's spirit. With the other nine commandments, we can sort of muster an outward obedience. We can sort of say, at least nominally, that yes, we're keeping this commandment. If you explode in anger, well, you can still keep the gun in your holster. If you lust after a woman and sin in your head, you can stay out of bed. At least you can offer some kind of outward obedience. Michael Horton, he tells of a Jewish rabbi who commented to him one day, He said, one of the great differences between our two religions, Judaism and Christianity, is is this idea that you've committed a sin just by desiring or thinking it. We believe you have to actually commit that physical act before it's really sin. Otherwise, we'd be sinning all the time. And you see, the rabbi is right. This is why the Tenth Commandment is so vital. Because it proves to us that we are sinning all the time. Here, you can't hide a guilty heart. You can't hide sinful desires behind a cloak of appearance. The Tenth Commandment exposes us. Hopefully, most of us can say that we've never robbed a bank. But have we coveted what wasn't ours? You're not an adulterer, hopefully, but have you coveted another man's wife? You see, moral people can sidestep around the first nine commandments. But everybody gets busted by commandment number 10. Our arresting officer's badge number is 10. Martin Luther once wrote, This last commandment is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. Officer 10 arrests us all. This is what Paul discovered. Before being converted to Christianity, Paul too was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Pharisee. In fact, he says he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There was no one who tried to obey the law with more vigor and more determination than Paul. And apparently he thought that he had complied to the first nine commandments. With commandment one through nine, Paul felt he was in pretty good shape. But when he read commandment number ten, even Paul started to squirm. He had nowhere to hide. The prohibition against coveting laid bare his heart. 
His sin was exposed. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he confesses, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The Tenth Commandment is so important because it exposes our sinful core. The sin of covetousness, you see, fuels all the other sins in, re- in reality. Idolatry, for example, is ultimately caused by covetousness. Every man ends up worshiping what he longs for. Ephesians verse five, chapter 5, verse 5, there Paul says that the covetous person is also an idolater. Covetousness and the desire for one more dollar causes us to work seven days and ignore a day of rest. Before a man steals, you know he covet what he steals. When we covet another person's property, we're going to lie about it to cover it up. David coveted Bathsheba before he committed adultery and before he murdered Uriah. This is the sin that causes all the other sins. The sin of covetousness. Let me say, even if you're innocent of the first nine commandments, with the tenth commandment, you have no alibi. Your fingerprints, man, your DNA are all over this one. No one can escape. You shall not covet. We're busted. And if we break one of the commandments, the Bible's clear. It's the same as breaking all the commandments. God doesn't grade on a curve. He accepts nothing less than a perfect score. And this is why the law has and will save no one. This is why we all desperately need Jesus. This is why the Bible tells us that the law was not given to save us. The law was given to show us the Savior and to expose our need for Him. Only Jesus can wash away our sin. Only Jesus can change a covetous heart. Only Jesus can give us a love for God and a love for others. If you ask Him, Jesus will quench your thirst. Jesus will give you peace. Jesus is the author of true contentment. I hope that Jesus will become the number one non-negotiable in our lives. I hope that we'll make loving Him and knowing Him and walking with Him our top priority. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. And we thank You for our studies, Lord, in the Ten Commandments and the things that we've learned, the non-negotiables that we've adopted for our lives, Lord. Help us to be men and women of conviction. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who don't just go with the flow, who don't just float around with no bearings. Help us, Lord, to know what counts, to know what matters to you, and help us, Lord, to base our lives on commitments and convictions and determinations. Help us, Lord, to put no other gods before you to worship you in the right way, to never take your name in vain, to remember the Sabbath day, to remember our need for rest and worship. Lord, help us to honor our mother and our father and to even raise respectful kids. Help us, Lord, to not 
think ill of others, to not murder even in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to remain pure before you and to not commit adultery. Help us, Lord, not to bear false witness. Help us, Lord, to not steal, but rather to work with our hands so that we can give to others. And help us, Lord, transform our covetous hearts. Make us people who love you and care for others. We want to be these kind of people. We want to live out the Ten Commandments through the power of your Spirit. Work in our lives today. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...